0: Well, good morning, everyone. As Lou said, my name's Dan. I'm one of the leaders here. And as Lou said, it's a great joy for us to welcome you this morning, especially visitors. We love having visitors with us. So we hope you feel very welcome here today. In recent weeks, we've been following a series on the ways we can be used by God to make a difference where he's placed us. And today we're changing gear. We're stepping back a bit. And we're thinking about how how God came to make a difference where we are. So this morning we're we're getting our Christmas on, we're getting ready for Christmas. And as a church we believe that God speaks to us through the words of the book that we call the Bible and we want to hear what he has to say to us. And so we ask him to speak to us as we come to it like Lou did just now. It might not have escaped your notice that there are 18 sleeps till Christmas or uh, 17 days and 13-ish hours, something like that. And I wonder if anyone here has written to Santa and asked him what they'd like. Anyone done that? Not for a long time. Oh, that's sad. Okay. Uh, Well, we'll have to wait till the 25th to see what Santa brings. This morning I want to ask you, what did Jesus bring you for Christmas? What did Jesus bring you for Christmas? You might have have read these words in our Christmas invitation card, which I've got one here. Uh, so the word became human and made his home among us he was full of unfailing love and faithfulness and we've seen his glory the glory of the father's one and only son these words are from the bible specifically they're from a book in the bible called john's gospel john's gospel is one of four accounts of jesus life and death and resurrection it's a bit like a biography and John sets the scene in the first 18 verses of his book, and uh, where he gives us an introduction. And if you're new to looking at the Bible, when we talk about verse numbers, we're talking about the small numbers in superscript, just above, above the sentence. And uh, when we talk about chapter numbers, they're the large print numbers. You'll find it helpful if you follow me in one of the Bibles in front of you, uh, and uh, on John chapter 1. If you're using one of the ones in front of you, it's page 1063. Page 1063. As we go through, you might notice that the words on the Christmas invitation card are slightly different. That's because we chose a different translation just to make it easier to be read by itself without someone explaining it. But they're still rather odd words, aren't they? Did you think that when you read those words earlier? Aren't they odd words? The word became human. Or as the Bible's in front of you put it in verse 14 of John 1, the word became flesh. Who or what is this word? And in what sense did it or he become human? And what difference does it make to me anyway? Why should I bother to try and understand it? Well, we'll try and answer all of those questions in the next 25 minutes or so. And to do that, we need to read a bit more of John's introduction and we'll discover that the answers are right there in front of you. If you've opened the Bible on the right page, that is. First of all, uh, we can have a look at the Word. So please take a look with me at the beginning of John's Gospel, at uh, the beginning of his introduction, verses 1 to 3 of chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. These verses tell us who the Word is. They tell us that the Word existed in the beginning, that is, before anything was made, before creation. They tell us that the Word was the agent of creation. Through through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And even this much knowledge might make us begin to think about the identity of this uncreated being who creates all things. And if you're familiar with the Bible, then you might think about the opening words of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1. Genesis is the book of beginnings. That's what Genesis means. In the beginning, the Bible says, Genesis 1, verse 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God God. God is the only being to exist in the beginning, before the creation of all other beings. And that is exactly who John says this Word is, God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. As someone has put it, he was God's own peer, the Word was God, was with God, sorry, and he was God's own self, the Word was God. Are you wondering yet why he's called the Word? Why not some other name? Why the Word? Well, what does Word mean? What thought does Word communicate? Words communicate meaning, don't they? Words express things. I'm using words right now to express meaning to you. Chocolate. I've just used a word that for most of you perhaps has conjured up warm, fuzzy feelings, pleasant treats. Unless you're uh, dairy intolerant or something, which I'm very sorry. It's not that nice. Uh, We have a close friend who can't stand certain words. Words like ooze and pus. And if you use them in the same sentence, it's really funny, because she gets really disturbed. (laughs) Not that I do that kind of thing either. But words express things. And then we come to the word. The word expresses God himself. The word is God's self-expression. The word communicates God to us. Now words only communicate something if you hear or read them. Here's a letter I wrote to you all this morning. Dear Portsmouth Church. But it's not the best of letters, is it? My words in this letter have not worked. They didn't get any further than the paper I wrote them on. They didn't reach you. And if you can't see this, they're all blacked out. Words are useless if they don't reach you. How about the words? How does God's self-expression actually express himself to us? How does he ensure that he communicates himself to us? And as we reach this point, I want to ask you a question. Do you want to know God? Would you receive his self-expression if he made himself known to you? And it's here that we get to verse 14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us became flesh. Anyone ever eaten chili con carne? Must, more, must be more of you who've eaten chili con carne. Great, thanks. Uh, sorry for vegetarians. I'm just trying to uh, upset everyone uh, with food intolerances this morning. Um, uh, chili con carne means chili with meat. What meat is not specified, maybe horse, who knows, something like that. But chili with meat... And John 1, John 1 verse 14 tells us that the word became carne, the word became meat. He took on flesh. More specifically, he became human. Still God, but now also human. God con carne, God with meat, God in flesh. And so we sing at Christmas time, word of God the Father now in flesh appearing. Or as we sung earlier, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, Hell the incarnate, the God in meat, incarnate deity. Still God, but now also human. This word in flesh appearing, in case you hadn't realized it yet, is Jesus. Jesus born as a baby to Mary and Joseph. Not just Jesus the baby, of course, but we'll come back to that later. And this single verse here, verse 14, is John's version of the Christmas story. And he gets straight to the point. No shepherds, no angels, no wise men, no donkeys, no Mary even. God became human. God visits and becomes human. And actually there's something particularly significant in John's account. And that's this phrase, made his dwelling among us. The word John used in the original language conveys this word, the word pitching his tent among us. More literally, he tabernacled among us. And that might be odd language to you, but it's language that's used very deliberately. Up until this point in the Bible's storyline, God's presence dwelt among his people in one special place. One place, the temple in Jerusalem, and before that, a special tent which performed the same function, as a temple in Jerusalem before the temple was built God's presence dwelt among his people in his tent and now this language is used at the arrival of Jesus the word the one who was with God and who is God the word pitched his tent among us God has come to live amongst his people. And this is a theme that John develops later in his book, where Jesus hints that he's the true temple, the true meeting place between the holy God and rebellious man, the place where people can come and meet with God. And he's not just the temple, he's also the sacrifice, and he's also the priest. And this is a really exciting theme to trace right through the Bible, actually, right up to the last chapters of the last book but for now we're going to carry on with John chapter one the word God's self expression becomes human to communicate God to us to make God known to us he becomes something tangible to us something that we can see and understand but what is it that he shows us what is it that he communicates to us about who God is Well, you need to read the whole of John's Gospel to find the answer to that question, to begin to appreciate it. And then you should read the other Gospels too, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then you should read the uh, rest of the New Testament to help you understand those Gospels. And in fact, you need to read the Old Testament part of the Bible as well, if you really want to understand. You see, the whole Bible points to who this Word is. And this Word shows us who God is. It's quite obvious that I can't realistically tell you everything there is to know about God in the next 15 minutes. But we can look at what John says in his introduction. Immediately after saying the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, God continues, we've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. Glory is an extremely important word in John. Seeing his glory here means seeing who he really is. Seeing his nature, seeing his character, his likeness. And what is that glory? What's he like? Well, look again at verse 14. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father. The Word communicates God to us as a son from a father. John reiterates this at the end of his introduction as he sums it up in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. If you're following that in front, you have a slightly different translation, but it's saying the same thing. God has been made known as a Son and a Father. And we learn elsewhere in the Bible that he's also a spirit. John tells us more about this revelation of God's being throughout his book. John writes about signs that Jesus performed. The word became flesh performs signs through which he revealed his glory. Sign of creating fine wine from ordinary water. He's after all the creator who loves to create wonderful things for people to enjoy and for him to enjoy. Signs of healing a man's son who was close to death with just a word from a distance. Jesus didn't need to be physically present to heal someone. Signs of healing a man who'd been an invalid for 38 years. He's after all the compassionate God who has the will and the power to restore our broken lives and make people whole. There was a sign of feeding a huge crowd of 5,000 men, plus women and children, perhaps 20,000 people with just five small loaves of bread and two small fish. And yes, that sign showed his creating power. But much more significantly than that, this sign pointed to the truth that he is the one who gives life, who gives his life, so that those who receive him may have life. Bread was life back then. You ate bread to keep living. You didn't have the diet, richness of diet that we have. Through this sign, Jesus taught that you need him if you want to live. Then there was a the sign of healing a man born blind, through which Jesus highlighted the spiritual darkness that we live in and our need for light amongst that. Our need for, to be given sight from our spiritual blindness. Then there was a sign of raising to life a man who'd been dead and buried in a tomb for four days just by calling the dead man out by name. And by this sign, Jesus demonstrated that he is the one who will raise all who believe in him to life. So many signs, so many signs, but the ultimate display of God's glory was to come. The ultimate revelation Of what God is like and this is seen in the most unexpected place this is seen on a bloody ugly brutal shameful cross when this word God the one who was God who became flesh when this word was killed on a cross and yet in that shame We see the most profound insight into the glory of God. The one who is the life lays down his life to give us life. The one who is the life lays down his life to give us life. And here, most brightly, we see the passionate love of God who rescues people who deserve the opposite. Here we see God's goodness displayed and in the events which follow we see yet more glory as as the one who laid down his life takes it up again for 3 days later the tomb where jesus was buried is empty john continues to tell us that story and he appears to his followers his final words on the cross now ring with victory it is finished he has completed what is necessary to restore lost and broken people into right relationship with God even to make them God's children something else John says in his introduction we've seen his glory the glory of the one and only son who came from the father maybe if you already believe in this Jesus, in this God, you might want to praise him now in your heart. Maybe you're still unsure. You're thinking about it. That's fine. But please, can I encourage you to think well. Read John's Gospel. Look at Jesus there. Examine the evidence. And if you have a friend who knows Jesus, then ask them your questions. Talk to them about it. Ask your friend if you could read John with them. Or uh, we run a course called an Alpha Course, which you could come along to here starting in January. Well, there's other courses you could go to in other churches. There's one more phrase in our verse that we're going to spend the last five minutes considering, five or so minutes considering this morning. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. It's about time we brought in an account from the Old Testament part of the Bible, from the book of Exodus. Exodus is only, only the second book in the Bible, and what we're about to look at there happened around 1,500 years before the events of John's Gospel. Yet anyone reading this opening chapter of John who knew the book of Exodus would have detected themes from it very strongly. I know a few people who are so into their films or their, or their songs that if you mention the title of a film, they can quote the whole thing, or a, or a song lyric, they can quote the whole song to you. That's what it would have been like for people who knew Exodus when they read John's Gospel. They would have been thinking of this, the words we're about to look at. And they're taken from chapter 33 to 34 of Exodus. You don't need to look at it now, but you can do later on, of course. Moses had asked God to show him his glory. And perhaps you can begin to see the connection already. Moses had asked God in chapter 33 of Exodus to show him his glory. And the Lord said, I'm reading now from Exodus, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you. And I will proclaim my name, the Lord, or Yahweh, in your presence I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord tells Moses that there's a place where he can go, a cave he can be hidden in, and God's glory will pass by him there. And the next day, the next day, early in the morning, Exodus 34 continues, Moses went up Mount Sinai, As the Lord had commanded him. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. Or Yahweh is the the name there for God. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty And there's a lot of connections here with John that we could draw out. The revelation of God's glory, seeing God's glory, seeing God's goodness. Remember how God's glory was seen when Jesus gave the ultimate display of God's goodness on the cross. But there's one phrase in particular that I want to draw to your attention to. And that's the phrase Yahweh uses to describe himself as abounding in in love and faithfulness, abounding in love and faithfulness. And these are key words in the Old Testament part of the Bible. They recur throughout the Old Testament. The words hesed, steadfast love, mercy, covenant love, gracious love, hesed, and met, truth, faithfulness. When Yahweh reveals his glory to Moses, among other attributes, he reveals himself as abounding in love and faithfulness. Abounding in is equivalent to full of, and the Hebrew pair of nouns translated love and faithfulness could equally be translated grace and truth, and that is is exactly how John translates them. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. God's self-expression became a human and showed God to be abounding in love and faithfulness, full of grace and truth. And as we've seen already, Jesus showed that chiefly in his death, where he brought a punishment for our rebellion, our rejection of God so that we could be forgiven. But not that the fullness of God's grace and truth is restricted to the cross, though. Far from it. We've also already skimmed through accounts of Jesus bringing grace to situations of children near death, people suffering long-term disability, people who are hungry, people who are grieving, even people who were dead. Jesus brought grace to them. There's one other account in John that I haven't referred to yet and that's of a woman. Now, no self-respecting Jew would be seen speaking to this woman. She was a Samaritan, a people who the Jews of Jesus' day despised. Not only that, she was a social outcast among her own people. She was a woman of shame and scandal in her messed up life She'd had five husbands, and now was now was sleeping with a guy who wasn't her husband. There was no way Jesus should have anything to do with this woman. She was, well, the term probably is a bit too impolite. But Jesus was no ordinary Jewish man. Jesus was God in flesh. The Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so he spent time with this woman who society had rejected and given up on. He gave grace to her. How we need the grace that Jesus brings. There's so much brokenness and hurt in so many of our lives. Just this week I've been aware of marriage breakups, people fighting cancer, people grieving the death of loved ones, people with children in hospital. And it goes on, how we need Jesus to bring us grace. We began by asking the question, what did Jesus bring you? For Christmas. I'd like to finish by giving you an opportunity to pause and reflect on that answer. Salvation. Forgiveness. Relationship with the eternal God. Adoption as children of the Father in heaven. Grace and truth. Grace and truth in your hurt and brokenness. Grace and truth, perhaps when all other people have rejected you. Grace and truth in your sin, your rebellion. What a gift to receive and rejoice in this Christmas. Just before we actually finish, I'd like to take a moment to think about the call to those of us who follow Jesus to be agents of his grace to be agents of his grace. The incarnation of Jesus is is not primarily an example. Primarily, it's God coming to save. But there is a sense, isn't there, in which it acts as an example for us to follow. Not in becoming human, most of us already are. Some of you are still listening. But in going going to a people to reach them, to bring them God's grace. Jesus said later in John, as the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And maybe that's a danger in the focus on our front lines that we currently have. Don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying it's not helpful. I'm convinced it's really, really helpful. But there might be a danger. What if we only ever focused on our immediate front lines. What if I only ever focused on the people who I'm living amongst or the people who I'm working with? If all of us only ever did that, well then there would remain unreached people groups across the world. What if George and Corrine only ever focused on the people in Southampton who they were amongst? Some of us need to go Some are called to go amongst people here. Some of us are called to our front lines here. But some of us need to go and make new front lines. Move into another neighborhood. Jesus sets an example of that. And sends us to do the same. Some locally, some elsewhere. So, please do reflect on on what Jesus gives us for Christmas reflect on his truth and grace receive his truth and grace this morning if you want to talk more about who Jesus is and how you can receive his forgiveness and grace that he offers I'd love to talk with you in the foyer afterwards I'll stand somewhere near the Christmas tree because that'll be fun and uh, maybe you want to pray maybe there's, you're just so conscious of your need to receive grace well we have a prayer team after the service and you can come and pray down here with them You don't have to be in a crisis, but come and pray, or pray with the people around you. But let's receive and celebrate the grace and truth that Jesus brings over these coming weeks.